players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Dockside Extortionist, Skirk Prospector, Namesticker Goblin, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Rollin YouTube, Thraben University, and TheEpicsFirm.com. This episode is sponsored by Sparks Law, a business transactional law firm owned by Eternal Magic Community member Jonathan Sparks. Hello, and welcome to episode 116 of the Eternal Glory Podcast beans and bombardiers we've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week available in our supporter exclusive pre-show check out patreon.com eternal glory to gain access or join as a youtube member for the same content on youtube instead as always i'm phil gallagher aka thraben you i am brian koval aka bosch and roll and i'm brian cook of the epic storm shout out to our new members before we start we've got thunder farts Hell yeah, Thunderfarts. Great name. Uh, your parents had a sense of humor. Yan W. and Eric from Patreon. And then we got Corey from YouTube. Thanks to all of our new members who will enjoy that pre-show this time. And this episode is brought to you by Sparks Law, a business transactional law firm owned by Eternal Magic community member Jonathan Sparks. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or gig worker looking to start your own company, Sparks Law can help you with partnership agreements, contract reviews, intellectual property protection, or any other business legal questions. If you want to shape your business strategy with a fellow Eternal Gamer, reach out via email to jsparks, that's J-S-P-A-R-K-S, at sparkslawpractice.com, or call 470-268-5234. And if you want to advertise to 10,000 plus Eternal Gamers every episode, reach out to us. We're always accepting new sponsors. This week, we're we're going to kind of vibe. We're going to talk about some of the big going-ons in Legacy, but this episode's going to be more like freeform jazz, where the prompt is beanstalks and bombardiers, as those are two of the major things that I think Legacy is currently centralizing around. Uh, I didn't know we would be doing jazz tonight, and I have brought zero heroin with me. I don't think I'm ready. Uh, can I get 10 minutes? Uh, I mean, in 10 minutes, I can uh, I can probably like loop careless whisper a couple times and like really set the mood. OK, cool. That's just as good as as drugs. The title of the episode was Beans and Bombardiers. Basically, the the framework here is up the beanstalk making huge moves in Legacy. Like the card was obviously playable the day it was released, but it is in a new spot. Saltai Beanstalk is at not only the top of the Beanstalk decks, but the top of the Legacy format, according to MTG Goldfish, at least in terms of meta percent. Uh, That doesn't adjust for win rates and stuff. I don't know all that off the top of my head. That MTG Goldfish Legacy metagame is frequently the bellwether of what's going on in the format. For the first time that I can remember, what, since Sensei's Divining Top was banned, there is a control deck being the number one most played thing. It is above any version of Delver, it's above Reanimator. Once in a while, over the last year or so, we've seen an Ancient Tomb deck take the top spot. Eight cast had it for a minute or two. Initiative was there for a minute. But this is just an honest brainstorm, force of will, blue control deck right at the top of the format. Been a long time since that happened. Brian, why do you think it's it's Sultai Beanstalk versus a four or five color deck list? You know, uh, a few weeks back at Eternal Weekend... We saw some like massive moves by Triumph of St. Catherine decks. Now, obviously, that card is not on Magic Online, but Leyline Binding, the rest of the shell is there. What makes the Sultai Beanstalk deck so good? So Pokemoki developed Sultai Beanstalk, and he and I started talking very early before Eternal Weekend, and I ended up playing his build of the deck with you know my thoughts peppered in throughout, but Pokemoki did most of the work there. And... What I found is that it really hinges around Wasteland 
I think, is where the most important fulcrum is between what version of Beanstalk you want to play. Because not only is four and five color beans particularly susceptible to Wasteland because they're trying to play cards with the domain mechanic in Leyline Binding, but Saltai Beans doesn't care as much about Wasteland and gets to play their own Wastelands. In a high number of copies, it's three. It's not even like the one that some control decks play just to be able to kill Caracas when they need to, but three Wastelands, two Witherbloom commands. It's really part of the engine to Wasteland your opponent and having that access to that mana denial while being more stable against opposing mana denial. It doesn't matter how powerful your cards are. That fourth Aerolingus, that Triumph of St. Catherine, if you can't cast it, I don't care. That's really where Sultai pulls forward. I have been really impressed by Witherbloom Command from the other side of the table. Um, I'm going to read this one in case you're not overly familiar with it. So it's a green and a black for a sorcery where you get to choose two of these. Target player mills three cards, then you can return a land card from your graveyard to your hand. Destroy target non-creature, non-land permanent with mana value two or less. Target creature gets negative three, negative one until end of turn. Or target opponent loses two life and you gain two life. I've just been super impressed by this card as it can do something like kill a bowmaster's pick up my wasteland to wasteland you again that has just been very consistently good from the the other side of the table and it can also just like snipe a lot of somewhat annoying things you know your chrome mox exploration chalice of the void etc yeah every mode on this card matters in legacy the like you said bowmasters in x1 uh, against decks like death and taxes everything's in x1 if you ever get to kill your thalia and your aether vial with the two modes, that's so sick. Uh, just picking up a land is insane. The way that this deck leverages Beatstock is with Delve spells. It has Murderous Cut and uh, Murktide Region in it. Murktide's a 4x. You need cards to Delve to cast those. The Mill Yourself for three matters. The Pick Up a Land matters, both if you're Wastelanding your opponent or just moving ahead on your own fetch land resources. And a lot of the times, the Burn mode matters too. Like you hit twice with a Murktide and then you Witherbloom Command, Mystic Sanctuary Witherbloom Command, the last four points away. In Delver matchups, uh, the racing matters a lot. I had a match at Eternal Weekend that I won versus Grixis Delver. I stabilized at six. I had Witherbloom commanded them twice very early in the game for Drain mode. And then like five, ten turns later, like a very deep interactive game later i stabilized at six and then they bolted a creature where if i hadn't drained them both times over the course of the game uh or i guess either time would have done it uh, been at four but if i hadn't drained them throughout the game that bolt would have went face and i would have died all of the modes if you're willing to get creative about how to use them matter a lot in this format and it's just so cool that you get access to whichever ones make the most sense for you I think there's another sort of hidden aspect of this as well. So you talked about the Delve spells, but the Sultai Beanstalk deck is also playing Lorien Revealed. And with a lot of the format being Bombardier's decks, there's a lot of Blood Moons out there at the moment, or Magus of the Moon. And you essentially have extra basics in your deck now that allow you to just go Island Hydroblast, which is a feature of these lists because Hydroblast is played somewhere between two and three copies on average. Having efficient answers to red cards in the format matters so, so much right now. And just being able to, like, Hydroblast, Dismember, to a lesser extent, like Wasteland, Witherbloom, Wasteland. The, the deck has a lot of interaction where, where it counts. Brian, what is it like playing against this deck as a, a combo player? Not necessarily just Storm only specifically, but, you know, how do you view this deck from the seat of a combo player? It is a lot more scary than the domain beanstalk decks. Like as a combo player, I'm usually pretty excited to get paired against the the soupy five color bean decks. Like there's a lot of sorts to plowshare type cards in those decks, terminus, and just cards that don't really line up well against what I'm trying to do. And when you face the Sultai Beanstalk deck, you have to fear wasteland and them recurring wasteland. You have to be worried about them stifling a fetch land. And if they do that, so they've now attacked your mana. Am I playing in a daze now? You're asking a lot of different questions, and that's on top of it being a deck that plays Force of Will. And then in the post board, obviously most control decks have Force of Negation. The Sultai Beanstalk deck also has access to Force of Vigor. So there's a lot of things going on 
where you're like, am I, is my mana being attacked this game or am I losing to one of their 10 free spells that blows me out? And then on top of that, they're in the bug colors. So that means that they get Leobold and Collector Oof. Not all this play those, but those are cards that you have to consider. So you're trying to play around a lot of different things all at once. And I've had the most success with picking a window when they're not trying to do one of a couple different things. So like if they're not attacking your mana, they probably have a bunch of free spells. So if you have a hand that can navigate through free spells, that's when you go for it when they tap low on mana. Uh, for example. And it's just like learning how to read what they have in their hand is when you'll gain the most success against this highly interactive combo deck or control deck. I'm sorry. So a lot of times when I'm thinking about playing against combo, I don't want all of my cards to operate on the same axis. This deck is, I think, good against combo, generically speaking, because you have counter spells. You have Stifle for a Storm Trigger or a Thassa's Oracle Trigger. You have some Hate Bears like Oof and uh, Leovold. Uh, then you have some other weird catch-alls like a Force of Vigor or, or, or Veil of Summer, Dress Down. Uh, th these decks usually aren't on Discard. Uh, I'm correct there, right? Like, this is not usually a Thoughtseize deck. At Eternal Weekend, I had one Thoughtseize in my deck. Yeah, but you could pivot into discard if you wanted to do that as well. Those converging angles of attack end up giving you a really strong package. So this is a Stifle Wasteland Days deck in some number, depending on the version that you're looking at. Typically, from a combo perspective, most combo decks are like, okay, well, if my opponent's doing that, I'm bringing in Carpet of Flowers right? It's the best thing to do against those strategies. Well, Saltite Beanstalk has Force of Vigor, so that's a little risky. And then we spent, I don't know, a good five minutes earlier on this episode speaking the praise of Witherbloom Command, another card that just blows that card out of the water, where if you're facing the four to five color bean deck and they leyline binding it, yeah, that stinks, but like you probably got a trigger out of there somewhere. Or like you pull out a card that like could have hit like your Song of Creation or Mox Opal or Lion's Eye Diamond or whatever else at instant speed. It's not as big of a deal. And I just think that I have to respect a lot more out of this deck than I do the other one. Yeah, Witherbloom Command, just like kill your carpet, waste you again, is so sick. Against Storm, the Witherbloom Command taking out a Beanstalk, waste you again in a Bean Mirror, especially if they're five color. Like, forget about it. We've already talked about that card quite a bit. Having to play against different stuff part of this deck is something that is evolving at a pretty fast rate. Because at Eternal Weekend, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I only know for sure that myself and Pokemoki played this deck. Probably someone else did, but it wasn't the number one played deck in the format, not by a lot. Now that it's being iterated on, it's changing quite a bit. And I'm not sure if it's for the better, because at Eternal Weekend, and when Pokemoki was selling me on this deck, we did some targeted testing as well, uh, matchup testing, head-to-head, -head, and the strength of the deck was that it had one Thoughtseize, one Spell Pierce, one Stifle, two Days. How are you supposed to play around any of that? If there's only one, do you play like they always have it and then you're giving them credit way more often than you should? Or do you play like they never have it and just get blown the hell out when they do? If you play around Days, then you walk yourself into Spell Pierce and it's just like a whack-a-mole of what do I actually have to play about around against this deck, which is a totally different calculation than old school Rug Delver, which is like they're going to have four stifles, four days, four wastelands, and some number of Spell Pierce or Spell Snare, because that's how this deck is built and what it's meant to do. And the current iterations are pulling Saltai Beans closer to that Rug Delver build. I'm looking at a list that went got second place in the most recent Legacy Challenge, and uh, this list has three Stifle, four Days, no Spell Pierce, no Thoughtseize, just all of the flex slots condensed into Stifles and Dazes, and that's just a different thing. As if you know my opponent, if you know you need to play around Stifle and Daze, now we're just playing the old Rug Delver matchup from the early days of Legacy, and it's not this control deck that has these frustrating little whack-a-mole responses to things you might do. And I'm not saying it's bad or wrong. I'm just saying this: it is moving the deck in a different direction where you really are trying to get a Merktide up under you and kill your opponent quickly before Stifling Days run out of efficacy rather than the deck that I registered for Eternal Weekend, which is a proper control deck where the endgame more often looks like on turn seven or eight, you play two Merktides and pass with a Force of Will in your hand and then you just kill them in one. 
So it's just kind of a very different thing. All of that affects what Brian just said about having to play against this deck as an enemy. I wonder how much of this change is adaptation to specifically the Magic Online metagame, where we're just seeing a lot of very fast decks uh, in the form of like Ancient Tomb Sticker Goblin decks, uh, lots, lots of reanimator in the Showcase Challenge. Uh, part of this might be just shifting down to become leaner against a smaller expected meta rather than casting the net wide for all the crazy stuff you might see in a paper magic event piggyback on phil here i had read and i don't know how true this is so maybe brian can you know educate me was that the rise of stifle in these decks from like a random one of up to three was that it's because you can stifle the initiative trigger out of boris initiative you can counter the ability of the name sticker goblin and if you do that from my understanding the goblin stack kind of falls back and crumbles a little bit uh so that's what i've read i don't know how true that is i mean i I'd like to think the goblin stack is a little bit more resilient, but that they do put a lot of effort into getting namesicker goblin on the table. And if you just stop that, it kind of makes sense to me, but who knows? Yeah. So like, I'm not in the room where everybody's talking about every iteration of this deck. Obviously, uh, this person who is Liz we're looking at, uh, they did well in the tournament and congrats to them. But I found and a huge level up in our testing for eternal weekend was when Pokemoki and I discovered that it's not the best way to beat initiative to try to fight over the initiative. It's let them have it, flash it a bowmaster, kill their creature, and take it. We we spent the month before Eternal Weekend just like, oh, this deck is just popular. It was big in Prague. It was big in Japan. And it's our nightmare matchup. And I played against White uh, Boros Initiative, I think, four times in the 11 rounds at Eternal Weekend. And I won three of the four. And the one that I lost was like the insane not draw versus run bad and maybe my opponent also cheated if you if you want to hear that story go check out my tournament report but it was there was like it was their best draw versus my worst possible run and some weird stuff happened along the way like i felt really confident and positive in that matchup with the plan of don't live in fear of the initiative entering the game because that's going to happen just kill their shit and take it after it does which completely flipped our understanding and at least in my experience, it seems like a positive matchup at this point. Not even just not that bad, but actively positive if you play it correctly. I'm going to just kind of hard agree with everything Brian is saying here. So here's the problem with stifling the initiative trigger. So you stifle the initiative trigger. Your opponent is either left with a 5-3 creature that potentially gains value on attack or a 3-4 impossible to block creature that maybe draws a card on attack. And neither one of those situations is great, right? Whereas if you remove the creature, take the initiative, you are now in control of the game and your counter spells and removal suite is so much better at protecting the initiative than your opponent's mono red or Boros deck is going to be at protecting it. And you can ride it to victory just so, so, so easily. I'm always terrified of that happening. I'm looking at a current list, Phil, and the removal suite right now is two Fatal Push. Fatal Push can kill initiative creatures, but you have to have, you know, a fetch land available on the spot, sort of, because you need the kicker mode of the Fatal Push. So if your list is going to have a bunch of stifles in it and then Fatal Pushes, I'm not saying that it makes sense, but one thing that I loved that Brian was doing back when we were preparing for Eternal Weekend was that he was saying... Oh, we're playing Dismember. You can kill Magus of the Moon off and on basic. You can actually pay for the black black. And it seems like people have moved away from Dismember, which I don't like because Dismember also kills large creatures through Chalice of the Void. So if you don't play the Fatal Push and instead you have the Dismembers, you actually have very few one drops in your deck. So Chalice doesn't even matter that much. But it seems like instead of using Dismember to their advantage, they're playing in a Chalice more, and then they're relying on Stifle because they're choosing to play Fatal Push, so it's become a house of cards. Does that make sense? Yeah, I have been singing the praises of Dismember in my videos. Like, I've been very actively adding that into sideboards of, like, donation deck lists that people have submitted. Uh, I, I have loved that card. Yeah, uh, H.J. Gotik, uh who is an Eternal Weekend god. Uh, he put up another finals this season uh, in Europe. 
Uh, he has two paintings already, and he's a person whose opinion I respect, and we like the same kind of decks. When I went on my run in Legacy at Eternal Weekend, losing my winning in, and I had a chance to talk to him for about 10 minutes, and he was like, okay, so tell me about this Altai Beans deck. And I was like, telling him what's in it. And he was just sort of like, yeah, okay, yeah, I thought of that. Yeah, I was aware of that, and like, uh, it didn't seem that good. And then when I said we're sideboarding two dismembers, he lit up. He was like, oh... Okay, okay. Like like he leaned in in our our physical conversation and he's like, "Yeah, that really that beats Magus in the Moon." It does it, and like everything we just said. That was like an 11th hour innovation from Pokemoki. It was just like, "What about Dismember?" And I think I was like, "What about two? And at that point, we were just humming and I had a game at Eternal Weekend where I kept a hand with uh Dismember in it on the draw against Initiative and they I think they molded a 6 and then went Petal, Petal, Cavern Human, Magus of the Moon. And I was like, I can never lose. Like, they had a turn one uncounterable Magus rune against my deck with one basic land in it. And then I actually even slow played it. I let them have the Magus for a turn. I played Wasteland, which was a mountain, past the turn. Let them play another land and then pass the turn back. Then I played an end step, dismember, untap, waste both your lands. And then the, the game was over because they used so many resources going all in on this thing that I could answer cleanly. And then if you survive the first wave of these ancient tomb decks and then start cutting their resources off from under them they're not really going to come back they're not good at doing two things in a game so some i, I want to highlight something brian did there a lot of these prison goblin stompy initiative style deck lists are playing symmetrical hate pieces and when it asymmetric asymmetrically affects players if you can leverage their hate piece against them, you are so likely to win the game because of the like virtual card advantage that you get. Like when an ancient tomb player leads on a Trinosphere and you wasteland them, and now their like petals and chrome moxen that they draw in the future are stuck in their hand, that's a massive advantage. When a Boros initiative player leads on a Magus of the Moon, but doesn't have a true white source, and then they can't you know, cast fourth A or Lingas or Season Dungeoneer or whatever. If you can take some hits in the short term, it's sometimes correct to not answer some of their permanents because they are actively promoting your game plan. Right. One of my camera matches in Vintage, my opponent had a uh, the 3-3 three, three that makes things cost more. Anointed Peacekeeper. Uh, Anointed Peacekeeper in play, naming a show-and-tell that I wanted to cast. And I de demonic tutored, not for Black Lotus to outmuscle the anointed peacekeeper but for dismember and i just passed the turn and that was in case they drew and played a containment priest in the interim between when i get to five mana for my show and tell uh like if i just crack off on the peacekeeper i even let them hit me with it take an extra three damage and then at the end of that turn when they had spent their mana on something that wasn't containment priest i was like okay dismember this untap win like you can take damage your life total is a resource use it I've had this theory, and I don't know how true it is, so maybe Brian can correct me here, but part of me thinks that the Sultai Beanstalk deck has really taken off due to the absence of Triumph of St. Catherine, because I think the Sultai Beanstalk, without Kathy in it, well, obviously, you're Sultai, you don't have it, but I think you're better set up to deal with these red ancient tomb decks of the format, but if the four to five color decks had Triumph in it, I think that their game plan is at least comparable enough to Sultai Beans, except they gain some additional tools just because like, uh, you know, end of your second turn, Brainstorm, Untap, Triumph is probably going to be good enough to beat a lot of the aggressive starts out of these aggressive red decks. And I think without the ability to do that, these decks get a lot worse. So in a paper metagame, is it crazy to assume that like the four to five color deck might be as good or even better? Yes, I played four color in Prague, uh, basically Saltite Beans, and I squeezed in some white removal and Triumph of St. Catherine. I actually started with the Saltite Shell and innovated up from there to make it a little bigger. I still ran into kind of the same issue where instead of having a bunch of wastelands of my own, I was pretty soft to wasteland. Though Triumph of St. Catherine is a huge piece of the puzzle that just doesn't exist in Legacy as it's primarily played, unfortunately. But yes, I, I think there is a good chance that people are saying, if I can't play this deck in its best form, I'm going to play a different deck. And they put away 4 or 5C and they end up on Saltai because the whole deck is there. 
something to keep in mind about like the lifelink in particular is that broadside often fucks up the actual life gain aspect of it where you're your triumph of saint catherine blocks some creature the creature that is blocked is thrown at your face and a lot of times like there is still just lethal damage coming through like i posted a twitter screenshot today of a combat step i don't remember on what turn it was but it was probably like turn four or turn five where my opponent passed the turn with two warm coil engines in play and they ended the next turn at negative five life as i just powered through anyway I, I don't know that relying on lifelink is consistent. It is a great tool to have in the toolbox, but the wasteland heavy aspects of the bug deck are a, a pretty big draw. Yeah, when I was playing with Triumph, I, I did, I think, four paper events with it, uh, Prague, SCG Pittsburgh, and then two local uh, dual land on a Saturday kind of things. And what I found is when you miracle her, she's nutso. And when you don't, She's bad, though, which might seem obvious, but five mana for that effect is so much worse than two. And I set up some things where it's like I have a beanstalk in play and mid combat, I like ley line bind one of your things, trigger beanstalk, flip cath, trigger beanstalk, block your other thing. Like that stuff is nuts. I also lost a bunch of games because I had a five drop in hand and they wasted my white source. So uh, it, there is some variance built into that. I was just working with a coaching client the other day. They had a Yorion five-color soup deck together, and they had three Triumph of St. Catharines in their Yorion deck. And we had basically that conversation where, like, this is good when you miracle it. I don't think you want this in a Yorion deck because you're less likely to miracle it. And if you do, I think you want four, so you draw it naturally more often. They were kind of like, yeah, I mean, the lifelink or the life gain is just really important sometimes. And I was like, have you considered Uro Titan of Nature's Wrath? And they were kind of like, oh, oh my God. A month later when we had another session, they were like, yeah, Uro has been insane. I might just cut the Catherines completely. And like, we do have tools that do this in a more kind of regulated way where Catherine's ceiling is higher, but her floor is lower. And Uro kind of still exists, still legal in the format. Don't forget. So I, I want to loop back to something Bryant started saying a few minutes ago. So... A couple of minutes ago, like you introduced the idea that the way to beat the initiative like may or may not actually be stifling their initial initiative creature or initiative trigger. And I want to talk about beating the goblins deck because I think at the surface level, so many people are focused on stopping the name sticker goblin when in reality attacking the lands is one of the most important things i think to beating this deck because if you just stop a sticker goblin the things that are in the red player's hand are still in there and are probably still castable like you haven't eliminated the broadside you haven't taken out the moxus you haven't stopped matron for another sticker goblin to just do the thing again whereas if you stop the first play, wasteland them, and then wasteland them again shortly thereafter, you never reach that goblin ringleader Muxus endgame, and you keep the deck permanently in its early game where it never has a chance to develop, it never has a chance to dump mana into Battlegrind Goblin and such. And I'm more scared of wasteland than most other things in the format while playing goblins. To play devil's advocate for a second, at least from my perspective, which might be wrong as the combo player, but when I'm facing that deck, it seems like every game they have turn one ancient tomb acceleration into super powerful three drop. Like it doesn't matter if it's broadside, rabble master, sticker goblin, always turn one hyper efficient play. Am I really supposed to wasteland them on the draw? Like assuming that I'm not playing a force of will deck and I can't force a will their creature right away, wastelanding them after they just went sticker goblin into whatever or rabble master or broadside, it seems like I'm on the back foot already. Yeah, I, I would not recommend taking game actions that leave you with zero permanence in play versus a 2-2 and a rabble master. 
putting that out there. Like you do have to survive the first wave, which uh, is something I said earlier about initiative, but it works against goblins too. You do have to be relatively stable against the first wave of stuff before you start cutting their mana out from under them. Sometimes that's easier said than done, but like take a turn to Swords of Plowshares of the Rabble Master and then kind of hope you're still alive uh, and they don't have a second wave right away. And sometimes they'll even like do the the Mind Goblin into Powerful 3-drop. You plow the Powerful 3-drop. It, it costs your turn to do that. And then they have like Ancient Tomb Ringleader. And then you see them fill up their hand with Terrifying Things. And then that turn you can waste them and try to strand the Terrifying Things and then just take four from the Mind Goblin and the Ringleader. And then like, again, life total is a resource. I'll figure this out next turn, but I'm not winning if they could just cast their whole hand next turn. You just got to deal with it as it comes. Yeah, the, the scariest things are when some someone does something like daze my initial three drop, wasteland my land, or snuff out slash dismember my initial three drop, wasteland afterwards. Like, the wasteland has to be paired with something that stops whatever my first play is. The be-all, end-all isn't the name sticker goblin. It is the soul land that allows me to keep doing the things. Right. And and a point that has been kicking around in my head, waiting for a window to come out here, is that name sticker goblin needs to be in play in order for its trigger to place a sticker on it and then make mana based on the number of vowels in that sticker. On MTGO, it's templated to read, if this is in play, you get the mana. So both in online play and paper play, for slightly different reasons, but it works the same, you can just kill the sticker goblin with a sword of plowshares, a fatal push, a drumroll please. Dismember, you don't need to play three stifles in your main deck if that's your concern. You can just put removal spells in your deck that most decks want to play anyway. And the fact that this goblin deck's seething song can be swords to plowshared or fatal pushed is a huge exploitable spot. Like stuff their turn. Like if you just fetch land go with fatal push in your hand, that can hit the mind sticker goblin and stuff their big explosion. If they play Rabble Master instead, it hits that. There's not many things that can happen to you that are unbeatable if you just fetch land go with a fatal push in your hand versus this goblin deck. And, that, and once you survive that first explosion, they're just kind of playing cards. At that point, most fair decks have some engine that can keep up with it. Yeah, and like let, let's talk about keeping up with it. If you are a fair blue deck and you make it past that initial burst, you will probably win the game unless a Moxus happens. Moxus is just this six mana card from hell that is always looming. And this is part of why the Sultai Beans deck and Witherbloom Command is so important. Because if you Wasteland Witherbloom Command, Wasteland again, maybe even taking out a Chrome Mox in the process, your opponent never reaches that endgame Moxus stage. And then your your beans, your Merktide region or whatever are just free to quickly end the game. Yep. And another thing that I want to make sure is said out loud, due diligence, is these are Cavern of Souls decks. Cavern of Souls mana doesn't travel up through the Mind Goblin. Like if your opponent has like turn one Cavern, turn two Ancient Tomb, uncounterable Mind Goblin, six mana, here's Muxus. Your Force of Will still gets the Muxus. Your Daze still gets the Muxus. There's a point in the chain that is exploitable. Uh, this was a, a gap in old food chain goblins as well. Like they could start their food chain with through a Cavern of Souls, but then food chain mana isn't Cavern of Souls mana and you could break it up later. Uh, it's the same thing. Mind Goblin is just really exploitable on multiple levels, despite being an insanely powerful card. It is balanced against normal things that legacy decks all just do anyway. The following comments are for Magic Online play only. Your opponent does not know how much mana their Sticker Goblin is going to make when they cast it, and you also don't know this. Depending on the content of your hands, it may or may not be correct to Force of Will the Sticker Goblin. Sometimes you can let it go and Force of Will, the thing that comes afterwards, if your opponent has already made the land drop and you know that Cavern of Souls isn't coming. But the risk here comes when your opponent high rolls. Like, when that 15 to 20 is rolled and 6 mana is produced, 
then you can start looking at double three drop or two drop into three drop or even two drop two drop activate battle cry goblin there there is a risk reward thing that comes with playing against the sticker goblin and you have to decide where you want to fight your battles and there's not always hard heuristics for like this is the correct spot. So one thing that I really liked at Eternal Weekend was I faced somebody who was on the Sticker Goblin deck, and when they presented their stickers, I picked them out, and then I was like, oh, now I got to figure out how many vowels are in these. And they said, oh, wait, no, you don't have to do that. I have them all written underneath the name, so that way everything is nice and clear. We're not wasting time. And I was like, you are the nicest Goblins player ever. Uh, and then they were like, well, unfortunately... And this was the first game. They're like, I only revealed stickers with fours. And I was like, is that even possible? And they're like, yeah, all three of my sticker sheets, the top increment is four. And then in game two, their top one was five. So I knew from the get-go that they could never just go sticker goblet into Moxus. And that was such a game changer. That matters a lot. Like That is a functional change. And I was actually just talking to a friend earlier today who is borrowing my stickers. I have them here. I'm holding them up in front of the camera my set of 10 stickers that make the most mana between them. Uh, I don't own any other stickers, just bought the right ones. And uh, he is playing a deck that uses Mind Goblin this weekend at a CEDH tournament. And he's asking to borrow my stickers. It is like kind of a tilt that you have to have this whole other pile of objects that you carry around and manage just for one card in your deck. I kind of wish they would errata sticker goblin to just have moto functionality, uh, to just roll a die. Can, can we do that, please? I know they don't like to functionally errata cards because it does come with a lot of baggage, but it's certainly, I think, both more interesting and cleaner the way MTGO does it. Uh, but but yeah, what I certainly plan on writing out all the numbers of vowels on the outer sleeve of these sticker cards before I give them to my friend this weekend. Another thing that happened was I was sitting next to a match where somebody on Grixis Delver was facing some other deck. I don't remember what it was. Before the match, they placed their stickers off. The opponent chose three or whatever. And then they go, all right, Polluted Delta, Fetch Volcanic Island, Delver. And the opponent immediately raised their hand, judge. And the judge called, they were like, well, my opponent presented a sticker deck and my opponent definitely doesn't have any stickers in their deck because they were like well they're not playing the sticker goblin and the judge was like and slow play warning yeah so that's exactly what happened and i'm kind of glad like most people choose not to play that sub game because if everyone did it it would just be miserable it would actually reward the goblin deck as well we've talked about this sort of thing a little bit on the pod before where like the three of us we came up in an era where magic content was full of like jedi mind tricks and bragging about how they got one over on their opponent for stuff outside of the game or like yeah i sat down at the table and air quotes, accidentally dropped a zombie token face up and picked it up real quick. Like when dredge is popular or something, you just reveal a zombie token by accident and then you're on a non-dredge deck. Like if you are doing that sort of stuff and you haven't already mastered playing your deck in the format, you're wasting time. If Patrick Chapin, who's already a world-class Hall of Fame magic player, can also find some weird little angle that gets him an additional advantage on top of his massive format knowledge and magic play skill. Good for him. But you, person at home, should not be worrying about managing a sticker deck if you're just playing Delver. Just stop it. It's not helpful. In my entire time of playing Ancient Tomb decks, which is the vast majority of my time playing Legacy, this is one of the strongest times to be an Ancient Tomb gamer, with the other one that comes to mind being when White Plume Adventurer was still legal. Uh, so that is a very, very strong statement for how good these decks are. You just get so many free wins against opponents where you keep a hand that if it passes the force of will check, your opponent is literally dead on turn two. And so a lot of times if your opponent is not playing counter spells specifically, you, you just win the game one because you come out of the gate so much faster than your opponent. And anytime my opponent, like, starts on some sort of, like, mother of runes, mana dork sort of hand, I just go, like, okay, so this is a 2-0. Like, it, it is just going to be that straightforward and easy. And the, the way that I'm viewing matches when I'm playing, like, the Goblin Stompy deck in particular right now is I am winning this game unless my opponent says no to me 
about three different times and it is like their job to do that uh which is a, a tough ask yeah in some ways like the most extreme example of this is oops all spells or belcher and like oops all spells can have a couple layers of stuff like they could have a pact of negation or they could thoughts easy first or whatever it is they do for a layer of protection but if you stuff the thing that they do it's going to take five, six, seven turns for them to rebuild it, if they even can at all, depending on how you stop them. If you stuff a goblin or initiative opening, they still have Ancient Tomb Chromox and play end cards in their hand, but it feels the same level of stakes as it does when you're against Oopsal Spells or Belcher. It's like, well, I'm probably dead. And it's not like literally, because like, obviously being literally dead is different than your opponent having a 7-5 trample and play that draws cards every turn. It feels damn close to being dead already except that these decks are just ultimately fair decks and they are just gonna have more cards and keep putting them on the stack until somebody runs out the the other thing is there's not that many matchups where i'm like oh god no not that one because very few things go faster than these ancient tomb decks right now like occasionally something like oops all spells will go under you occasionally you know lands will open up on Greenland exploration land and produce a turn to merit lage when they're on the play and that goes faster than you but outside of that you end up goldfishing a lot of decks that need a turn cycle or two to ponder and brainstorm to kind of get their their plan going and I recorded a league like five rounds of Magic the Gathering today in like an hour and ten minutes that is it like including the time it took me to like talk about my mulligan and sideboard decisions in detail like the deck is fast not just in terms of how quickly it kills you but in terms of like how quickly you can just make it through a league and get those those reps in welcome to the club phil you now know what it's like to play the epic storm no uh, no it feels good like I, I made a joke when i was recording my intro bit it's like did I pick this deck because I spent too much time working on CEDH stuff today and I need to squeeze in a recording before dinner? Yes, I did. Yep. Yeah. If I have Stompy releasing on the channel, especially if I used a dealer's choice to do it, it's because I have one hour today to get something in the can. These decks are really good at doing that. I think back to that era where Thomas Hep and Pokemoki were in the trophy race and Pokemoki was playing Rug Uro. Uh, like a slow control deck and Tom Hep was playing turbo depths and they were kind of neck and neck in trophies, despite a league probably taking literally three to five times longer for Pokemoki than it takes for, for Tom. There is a lot to be said. Uh, like we, we have debated it, whether it actually holds up in broad data or not, but it certainly feels like Moto leagues are full of reanimator and bullshit. Cause people are just like, get a league done on my lunch break or get the most four ones I can in the shortest amount of time to just pad out my collection with treasure chests and play points uh, versus the actual stability of I have to win all my matches in a nine round Swiss tournament. Like that's been debated, but uh, yeah, these decks are actually good and they have staying power. While we're on that topic, if you look at the legacy showcase data from uh, this past weekend's event, the most popular deck by a wide margin for some reason was actually Reanimator. There's 35 people playing it, and it was 13% of the meta, which is kind of wild because our thing, I mean, as a collective, we've always been like, Reanimator isn't really a deck you want to play in a 15-round event, yada, yada, yada. Well, it put a number of players into top 32, and there was just, well, that kind of comes with the fact that, well, 35 people chose to play it, right? Like, it had a lot of pilots, so therefore you're going to get some that are successful, but our time's changing. I mean, that's probably not a topic for this episode, but we kind of moved in that direction. Well, I think that's actually really interesting dovetail here, because everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's the famous Mike Tyson saying and reanimator is kind of that uh, like canister does this three or four times a year he just qualifies for the legacy showcase challenge based on you know streaming all the time whatever and then in the actual showcase challenge he innovates like three or four cards in reanimator to have some sideboard plan that people don't quite understand and then he crushes the event and people read this as like reanimator is well positioned or is it reanimator was well positioned in the hand of this world-class player who 
also innovated something new people were ready for in this tiny predictable field. The argument of, and I hear this all the time as a, as someone who offers legacy coaching, people come to me and they're just like, yeah, I play reanimator. I just don't think I'm good enough to, to play a real game. I, I just want to one, two, see who's dead right now. Pursuant to our recent conversation, if you want to one, two, see who's dead, you could play the initiative. You could play goblins. And those decks are probably more stable and powerful than reanimator. One thing I want to talk about is like, what what changed? Because Ancient Tomb went from being a strong portion of the metagame to being one of the best portions of the metagame. And the big thing that changed is Broadside being injected into the format because Broadside gives you evasion and haste on a creature while giving you incredible reach. It makes bad bodies such as Goblin Matron and Sticker Goblin good again it gives you creature removal to keep your small things from getting blocked and the broadside itself from getting blocked and it gives you a red removal range that can actually kill larger creatures such as murktide regent the amount of work that that card did in polishing up these red archetypes is just absolutely insane when i saw that card i thought it was good and the more I played it, I'm like, this is a format-defining staple. Yeah, and speaking of format-defining staples, I think the the ship is finally in the harbor for Fable of the Mirror Breaker. This card is banned in formats. <laughs> like, this card is completely cracked. Now Legacy, as a whole, Ancient Tomb decks are just wholesale 4x in our decks that could cast this thing on turn 1 or 2. It's in here. The 2-for-1, just by casting it, the card selection, if it gets to Chapter 2, this... Part of the problem with stompy decks of old was they keep their hand and these are the cards I get. But Fable of the Mirror Breaker, you don't want to let that goblin live because mana is one of their gates. But then if they have the mana anyway, you'd rather kill the next creature. And if you kill the goblin or the next creature, those are two removal spells gone for the Kiki Jiki on the back, which goes ape shit with any creature in their deck. Uh, I think that that is just a huge... It took a while to creep in. We saw like, you know, people trying two of these here and there. and. We're at fully at the place where uh, Red Prison, Goblins, Painter, everybody's just got four of these if they can cast them. Yeah, I cannot overstate how broken the backside of Fable is. Like, Reflection of Kiki Jiki, Copy Broadside, Attack for four, air quotes, unblockable damage, Fling the token at your opponent's face for another five and maybe use the token to throw something else as well such as i don't know the fable of the mirror breaker itself just often ends up being close to 20 damage in a single attack step right and and that's like with just broadside bombardiers like copying any initiative creature you get another initiative step and you get whatever its attack trigger is whether exploring or flipping a card depending on the guy then uh, fury forgot about it <laughs> eat your board take 12 like this obviously like kiki jiki is a busted magic card and when it just arrives in play after already making a creature and fixing your hand and maybe ramping you mana as well uh, it's it, it's a linchpin like this is a, a truly messed up card and i also think that legacy players if you're not respecting this card yet if you're letting fable resolve because you're like what's their four drop stop doing that uh, fable is messed up and even if you could like I, I also kind of advocate if you have something like leyline binding or prismatic ending that could answer the goblin token or could answer the fable before it reaches chapter two strongly consider the cards in your opponent's hand like what's gone on in the game to this point because a lot of the times those fable gamers are counting on that rummage too to do the next thing in the game and it might be worth more to take out the fable. Yeah, fables in this really weird position where sometimes it's the glue that holds your mana base together after you hemorrhage like Chrome Moxon and Spirit Guides in the first couple of turns to do something like play it. But a lot of times it's it's your inevitability. It lets you loot away the bad lock pieces, the extra lands, and it ends up being that copying fury or an initiative creature in the end game is actually the thing that is going to win you the game and like the true end game is just four turns down the line um i actually had a donor submit a jaxus the troublemaker goblins decklist that i played today 
just for the idea of having a, a kiki-jiki with haste on turn three is just absurd for copying your sticker goblins, broadsides, and, and whatnot. Paying three mana for one activation of that was worth it in the league that I played. So that should be telling for how good Fable is. The the widespread adoption of that, plus the printing of Broadside Bombardiers, has really... And the addition of, of course, Mind Goblin to MTGO, where we knew a 2-2 Seething Song was powerful, but until people really started iterating on the list, we weren't sure. I had never read Battlecry Goblin until Mind Goblin got printed onto MTGO, that's for sure. But people are finding this stuff and, and really bringing these shells together. So the, the focus on this episode has really been on the the broadside decks. There are other really good Ancient Tomb decks right now, but they're probably a tier below. Um, I've recorded with Painter recently. I still think Red-White Painter is very, very strong. Um, I think that if you're a Painter player, you should like maybe be testing broadside as something that you should be throwing in that deck list. You're not necessarily playing this like aggressive game all the time like initiative and goblins are but just using that as a board control option when you can recur the artifacts that you're sacrificing anyway uh conceptually feels like a pretty good thing to be doing in a deck that often ends up playing a mid game or a mid-range control role with an oops i win combo that happens to be in the deck yeah painter has uh, over the years and especially now is in a spot where it's not about painter grindstone it's about engines they sneakily let you or they they sneakily assemble engines while you're scared of painter grindstone they don't play that many grindstones i think it's like two and they can tutor them with sagas of course but if you're holding your plow and not removing goblin welder or goblin engineer or the Fable of the Mirror Breaker or whatever, because you need that plow for Painter, or you think that's true, it's probably not. And you're just going to die to the things that are in front of you. Painter's got a lot going on these days, and I think it's the... Somehow, despite being the one with the combo kill, I think it's the fairest Ancient Tomb deck. It's kind of weird. Uh, it's the one that will play the longest back-and-forth game with you, even though they can kill you on turn two i think it's also a deck that has been somewhat punished by lorian revealed get my basic island hydroblast like that is a deck that doesn't want to see an increase in hydroblast and due to the other ancient tomb decks of the format it's receiving splash eight and trust me as the storm player i know all about splash eight the rise of eight cast and null rod seeing play like painter is definitely a deck getting some stray bullets at the moment yeah and they also hit the stray bullets for the, the like meltdown stuff because they are an artifact based deck that is also playing Urza's Saga and a lot of times you just want to play a fair Urza Saga beatdown game for five or six turns and then pivot into a combo kill well a lot of times a meltdown or equivalent in the mid game will go and take you off the mana that you would need to just oops combo off in one turn out of nowhere yep it is a a golden time to be a tempo-ish control deck or just send nonsense at your opponent's face. And despite all of this, I think that both of these things are pretty healthy. And I still love Legacy right now, even if I think Ancient Tomb Gaming is the scum of the earth, and I think they're bad, and I hate losing to them every time. I still think Legacy is healthy right now. Yeah, strong agree. I, I think there's a lot of easy wins to be had if you are an Ancient Tomb Gamer right now, but I think there is a difference between... This deck is so good that anyone who is picking it up is going to just like farm with it and where we're at right now. There are still a lot of very difficult decisions in playing these ancient tomb decks, uh, especially in like what is and isn't an acceptable mulligan. I don't think we are even in the realm of thinking about having any ban conversations right now. Format feels great. Nope. Agreed. Uh, do we have anything else to talk about? We're, we're right at our target here. This feels like a perfect spot to put a bow on it. Nah, put that put that bow on it. Let's call it a day.